Bibles, if you would please, to Revelation chapter 1. We're in our third lesson tonight in the book of Revelation, and we've dispensed with all the preliminaries and all the previews. Now we're getting ready to get down to a verse by verse, or at least section by section of our study of this book. Last week, we did see a preview of the book. If you remember in verse number 19, we said that was the outline for the book of Revelation, where John was told there to write the things that he saw, the things that he sees, and the things that he will see. Tonight, we're going to deal with that first part, things that John saw, and this we have in the first chapter. And what John saw was a vision of the resurrected Christ, the magnified Christ, probably I should say better. He saw Christ in his glory. And next week, we're going to talk a little bit more about the description of Jesus and what he writes there in this first chapter. But tonight, we're going to look at the salutation of the book. We're going to see the introduction, and we'll talk about the vision that John saw as he writes this letter to seven real, literal, flesh-and-blood churches that were existent in his time. But the message that we have in Revelation is far greater than just what was given to those seven churches because this is a message to churches of all time. I've titled the message tonight, The Best Hello That You've Ever Heard. John says hello, but it doesn't just come from him. Not just a hello from him, but this is a hello from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And I would have to say, if he says hello to you, that's the best that you'll ever hear. We have some wonderful information in the passage tonight for Christians. Let's stand, please, as we look at Revelation chapter 1. We'll start reading at verse number 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ. And remember that word revelation is the same word from which we get apocalypse. And it means unveiling. It means to, to reveal things, to take the lid off, to make things visible. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which he gave unto him, to show unto his servants things which must shortly come to pass. And that doesn't mean that it was going to happen right then. But what it means is that when these things start to unfold, they'll happen in rapid succession. And he sent and signified it by his angel unto his servant John, who bear record of the word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ of all things that he saw. Blessed is he that readeth and they that hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written therein, for the time is at hand. And there's that wonderful blessing that's promised to us from studying this book. Any time that you learn something about Christ and you see Christ revealed, you are blessed. Verse number 4, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his father to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him. They also which pierced him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Heavenly Father, thank you for the reading of your word tonight, and what a wonderful introduction that we have to this book. Help us, Lord, to have our eyes open to a revelation of Jesus Christ as we think about him this evening. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. 
salutation of John's letter begins at verse number 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. Most of you are, are probably familiar with the seven churches of Asia. Whenever you hear a message from Revelation, probably that's one of the main places that the preacher is going to go to. It's to talk about these seven churches that we find in chapters 2 and 3. And these are messages to individual churches. I said a moment ago, these are real flesh and blood churches existent in John's time. And he writes to these seven churches that are located in seven different cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So he's writing to churches. Now, the first thing that comes to our mind, probably when we think about John writing to seven different churches, is we get the idea of an old church building with a huge spire and stained glass windows, very gothic-looking structure, even though, of course, the gothic age is a thousand years after the time that we're talking about. But the picture that we get in our mind is he's writing to a church, and so we get that, that picture of a church building in our mind. Well, in John's day, they didn't have church buildings. These were churches that met in houses. And so when John writes to the church, he's talking about a group of Christians here living in these different cities. And in those cities, even though a city, for instance, like Ephesus, it was a very large city, yet there would only be one church that was located there. I don't have any hesitation to tell you tonight that I believe that they were Baptist churches. And I don't say that because they had the name Baptist on those churches, because they didn't, because we didn't have that name until several centuries later. But I do know this, that the very same truths that were taught in those churches are the very same things that we're teaching tonight. Uh, we teach the same message that was delivered by Jesus and the apostles. So I believe that they were Baptist in their character. But we notice something here about these churches is that as we study through this, all churches need encouragement from the Lord and there are five of these seven churches that were in very serious error. That means that over 70% of those churches was in some kind of serious doctrinal and errors in practice. Well, I think if you took a survey of all churches, you would probably find out, I mean, at least uh, from what I know it, uh, at least, is that if you found 30% of churches that were actually standing true for the Lord, I think that would be a pretty good percentage. But really, I think it's probably far less than that. There are many, many churches that are wrong in their doctrine and their practices, or at least they have some, some things that need to be corrected. Now, these seven churches, as I said, are recipients of this letter, but they are representative of churches in all times. Now, I want you to pay particular attention as we read here to the number seven. Seven is a very important number in Scripture, and, and Revelation deals a lot with numbers. As we go through the book, you'll notice particularly the numbers 3 and 6 and 7 and 10 and 12. And 7 is a very important number because it's a number of completion. But more than that, I think it's also a number of perfection. Just like when God created uh, the heavens and the earth. He created the earth in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. And when he was finished, he had a complete creation. And he saw that it was a good creation. He saw that it was a perfect creation as he had created it. 
So you see the number seven. There's seven churches in Revelation, seven pastors, seven seals, seven trumpets, seven vials of wrath. And we'll come across a lot of different series of sevens, which makes it a very important number. Now, we're going to get to those sevens later. We're going to get to the seven churches actually later. But I want you to notice particularly here the first seven that we see. It says, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. So here's the first thing that I want you to notice tonight, and that is the completeness of God. The completeness of God. Well, what does John mean when he says seven spirits? The first thing that would probably come to our mind when he talks about the Spirit, we would say, well, this must be the Holy Spirit. But we know that the Holy Spirit is a trinity. And we talk about all the time, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so, if, he's, if there are seven Holy Spirits, then that would mean that there are nine parts to the Godhead instead of three. And so, we would be saying Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So, that throws some people off. And so, they look at this and they say, well, this can't be the Holy Spirit that he's talking about. He must be talking about some kind of angelic spirits. There are angelic spirits that are around the throne of God. But I don't think that that's right. I think the the number seven here is a number of completion. But more than that, in this particular place, it means a number of perfection. So let's talk about that first. Seven is a number of perfection. And I want to tell you that I do believe that what he's talking about here is the Holy Spirit. Now, obviously, we don't have seven Holy Spirits. There's only one Holy Spirit. I think he is talking about one of the members of the Godhead. He's talking about the the message of Jesus Christ. And he's talking about the Trinity here. And who is it in the Trinity that has the responsibility of unveiling Christ? This is the revelation of Christ. It's the unveiling. So who has that responsibility? Well, according to Scripture, it's the Holy Spirit that does that. He's the person of the Godhead who reveals Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our sin. It's the Holy Spirit who who opens up our heart and makes us understand the gospel of Christ. And if we were to know anything about Jesus at all, I mean, especially in particular about his, his saving knowledge, the saving knowledge of Jesus, that knowledge comes through the work of the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives us some great teaching about the Holy Spirit in the gospel of John. I want you to turn your Bible there for just a minute. We'll look at what he says here in John chapter 16. And uh, Jesus is in the final discourse here in John, and he's uh, uh, talking to his disciples before he goes to the crucifixion, and he's revealing some things to them personally. These are very intimate moments between Jesus and the disciples, and he says something important about the Holy Spirit. In verse number 7 of John 16, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, of sin because they believe not on me, of righteousness because I go to my Father and ye see me no more, of judgment because the prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Now, let me stop there for just a minute. I want you to notice how many times that John uses that personal pronoun, he. And one of the things that that tells us is that the Holy Spirit is not an influence. The Holy Spirit is a person. He's a real person in the Godhead. And he goes on and he says, Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth. 
For he shall not speak of himself, but whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and he will show you things to come, and shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine, and show it unto you. So there you see the work of the Holy Spirit. It's his job to reveal the truth. The Holy Spirit never seeks to be prominent. He never seeks to to speak of himself and to set himself up. He's always pointing us to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the Holy Spirit does in the Godhead. He opens up and he reveals Christ to us. And so I think that when John is talking about the seven spirits here, he is talking about the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus is mentioned, of course, he's the Son of God. Uh, God the Father is mentioned in verse number 6. The Holy Spirit is mentioned, and that completes the Godhead, the Trinity. But it still leaves us trying to figure out, what does he mean by seven spirits? Well, the key to this is not talking about the number seven relation to completion, but rather speaking about it as a number of perfection. So the key to this is the perfection of Jesus Christ as shown through the Holy Spirit. Now let me show you how that works out. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 11. And I think that here is where we find the answer, the explanation of what John means here in in, uh, Revelation chapter 1 verse 4. Isaiah chapter 11 is a messianic chapter. And that simply means that this this is a foretelling or a prophecy concerning Jesus. So if you look at Isaiah chapter 11 verse number 1... And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. Now, there's where we get he's talking about Jesus. Verse number 2. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. What we have there are seven special identifying marks of Jesus as the Holy Spirit dwells in him. Now, the revelation is the unveiling of Christ. And here we find that in Jesus is, number one, the spirit of the Lord. There's the spirit of wisdom, the spirit of understanding, spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, and spirit of the fear of the Lord. So there you have seven attributes of the Holy Spirit as they exist in Christ. Now, there's another remarkable thing about this scripture, because if you separate out this particular part, that in Jesus is the Spirit of the Lord, the Holy Spirit is in him, then you find three sets of attributes that follow that. Each of those attributes is connected by and. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. Now, there's where we're going to see the prominence of the number three. That's the number of the Trinity, and that completes the Godhead. Now, I want to tell you something, that these numbers and these kinds of things that we have in the Scripture are not here by accident. These things are put here on purpose to reveal something to us. One of the things it tells us is that God is a God of order. God is a God of purpose. There's no such thing as chance when you come to the things of God. Now, notice something else in our text verses that point out the completeness of God. Go back to Revelation chapter 1, verse again, and we'll look at verse number 4. It says, from him which is, which was, and which is to come. We're all creatures of time, but God is not bound by time. Here you find three terms, past, present, and future. And by the way, that's a set of three, isn't it? But God transcends time. And when he says here, which, which is and which was and which is to come, that's just another way of saying that God is eternal. 
And I want you to pay particular attention to that because that's in relation to Jesus Christ. He is eternal God. He wasn't a created being. He's not some angel. He is eternal God. And those three, that, those three things that are said about him, which is, which was, and which is to come, points to him as eternal God. So the thing that we're looking at here next is the number three. And that's the number of divinity. That's the number of the trinity. And you'll see these series of threes throughout the Scripture. You see holy, holy, holy. You find that in the Old Testament. You find it in the New Testament. And, of course, there's many times that we see in the same passage of Scripture where it's mentioned the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the number three, and it's a number of divinity. And then, again, this, which is, which was, which is to come. That's a set of three, and it's the same thing as saying that Jesus is eternal God. But then there's another thing in this passage that shows the completeness of God and of Christ. If you look in verse number 8, just skip all the way down to verse 8. It says, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Now what that tells us is that Jesus is A to Z. He's first and last and he's everything that's in between. Most of you are familiar that Alpha and Omega are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. And it would be the same thing as if we said A to Z. There are 26 letters that are in our alphabet. And with those 26 letters, all of the Bible was written. Every encyclopedia is written. Works of history are written. Novels are written. uh, The best commentaries on the Word of God are written. The most beautiful poetry is written. All of it's written from those 26 letters, including from A to Z. And that's what Jesus Christ is. The Scripture says, He is before all things, and by Him all things consist. So there's nothing that lies outside of Christ. He is the full revelation of God. So God is complete, and in Jesus dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. That's what the Scripture says. Now, John wrote this, and John couldn't have, he just couldn't have said a better hello than to speak of the fullness and the completeness of Jesus Christ, the one from whom the message comes. Now, let's go on here, because in the salutation, we also find the characteristics of Jesus. Verse 5 says, and from Jesus Christ who is. Now, we'll stop there for just a moment and think about that from Jesus Christ who is. Then he goes on to tell us some things about what Jesus is, who he is. Now, most people think or many people think that they they know who Jesus is. But when they start to describe who Jesus is, often they fall far short of what the Scriptures say that he really is. See, unless you believe that Jesus Christ is very God of very God, then you don't know who Jesus is. And unless you have a a Jesus who accomplished everything that he was called upon to do, and that would include the salvation of every person that he intended to save, then you don't know who Jesus is. Not really. And unless you have a Jesus who said that it is finished, and he said there's no more to be done, there's no work to be be done, there's nothing that can be added to what Christ has done on the cross, unless you believe in a Jesus who started the work and completed the work, you really don't know who Jesus is. Now here he says, I'm going to tell you who Jesus is. Well, John obviously can't tell us everything there is to know about Jesus in such a short passage. And so he just summarizes some things. He starts to tell us some things about who Jesus is. If you remember, it was the Apostle John who wrote that if I could tell you everything that Jesus said and did, 
He said the world couldn't contain the books that should be written. We, we just don't have enough knowledge. We don't have the ability. We don't have the time or the space to write down everything that Jesus is. But John's going to tell us a few things. So what does he say? Well, first of all, he says that Jesus is the faithful witness. Now, there's many things in which Jesus is a faithful witness because in him dwells all truth. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. So whatever uh, Jesus says is always faithful and true. You never doubt the veracity of Jesus. I mean, that means that everything that he said in this book is true. It means that every prophecy that he made will come true. And certainly it means that for you as a Christian, every promise that he made is going to come true. But when I think here about why that John would write about this and why did he says that Jesus is the faithful witness, then I have to go back to what he wrote in the gospel accounts. John is the one who points out more than any other writer that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. And he made it very clear in chapter 3 in the Gospel of John that Jesus had a purpose to fulfill. And so Jesus came for one very important purpose, and that was to witness one very important factor, and that is the love of God for this world. It was John who recorded the words of Jesus in John chapter 3, For God so loved the world. Now, Jesus is a witness of God's love. Well, how could God communicate that to us? That's a problem. And John describes what a problem that it is in John chapter 1, verse 18. He said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. No one has ever seen God. You can't see God because he's a spirit. And so what Jesus came to do, he came to witness of him. He declared God. He was God incarnate. And what he came to this world to do is to declare God's love for his people. God sent his only begotten son because of his love. The next thing that John says, that he's the first in the resurrection. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the resurrection tonight because we're studying 1 Corinthians 15, and and, uh, we've got several messages on the resurrection. Uh, So uh, we won't spend much time on that, but he does say here that he's the first begotten from the dead. People are confused about that. What does that mean, the first begotten from the dead? Well, that means that Jesus is the preeminent one. It means that he's the one who's the leader in the resurrection. He was the very first one who came out of the grave under his own power, and he's the first one who lived never to die again. And because Jesus was raised in power, it also tells us that he has the power to raise us as well. And so Jesus is the first begotten of the dead, meaning that He's going to lead all of the saints of God in all ages in the resurrection. But then there's a third thing that he shows us here. And that Jesus is our, is our freedom from sin. He says, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. There are many translations that you can read that when they come to that verse, they use the word released instead of washed. And the original word does contain the idea of release. It was the shedding of Christ's blood that released us from the guilt of sin. It released us from the condemnation of God's law. So Jesus is our freedom from our condemnation. He takes away the penalty. He sets us free from that. Now, I know, and you should know as well, that all of that is inherent in that word washed. But one thing that I wish they wouldn't do, and that's change the original King James word, 
And the reason I don't think they ought to change it, change it is because when I think of the word wash and I read that in the King James Version, I get the picture of Jesus Christ pouring out his blood all over me to wash away the stain of my sins. Now that's what the word means as well. A sin is a stain that has to be washed away. And just like when you, when you take a garment and you put it in a washing machine and, and uh, uh, it's there being clean, cleaned, the, the dirt is released from the fibers in that, in that garment. And that's the same thing that Jesus does for us. He washes us in his blood and he releases us from the stain of sin. Now, I think that we have here a wonderful message from, from John and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And here, uh, John just reveals some awesome characteristics. Later on, he's going to talk about the, the majesty of Christ. He'll speak about him being king of kings and lord of lords. But one thing John doesn't forget to do, he doesn't forget to tell us that there was a sacrifice. Jesus had to come and wash us in his blood And that makes us, as he puts it here, kings and priests to God. Now, that brings us another characteristic or to another one. And then fourthly, he's the ruler forever. It says here, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Dominion is a reference to his kingdom, to to the domain of Christ. And the Bible teaches, and we'll find it here in the book of Revelation, that Jesus is coming in an everlasting kingdom. And the prophecy is that Jesus Christ will rule from the throne of his father David and there will be an eternal kingdom that he's going to set up. Now, that everlasting kingdom will bring all things into subjection under the headship of Christ and under his authority. Now, at present, the authority of Christ has been usurped. Men usurp his authority. Satan usurps his authority. But in the end, Jesus is going to bring all things back again into subjection to his dominion. And that's really the glorious expectation of every believer in Christ. There is a kingdom that's coming. Now, right now, of course, we we are living in a spiritual kingdom. And the Bible teaches that we are a kingdom of priests. Now, if you look right there, it says kings and priests in verse number 6. Many... Uh, many Bible expositors render that, and it's probably better rendered, a kingdom of priests. And what that means is that because of what Christ has done on Calvary, because of the fact that we're washed in his blood, we have the ability to come to God. In the Old Testament, the people had to have a priest. They had to have someone come and offer sacrifices for them. But when Jesus came, he offered up himself as a sacrifice for sin, and he ended all sacrifices. He was the last sacrifice, one final full sacrifice for sin. And that's why we don't need a priest today. We don't have to go to anybody to have them intercede to God for us because when you put your faith in Christ, you become a believer priest. You can go right to God anytime that you want without the intercession of another priest. Now John says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. And all of that is set in motion by the third element in this, in this salutation. And number three is the coming of Christ. Verse number seven says, Behold, he cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see him, and they also which pierced him. And in all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. Even so, amen. Now, the prophecy of the book tells us what's going to happen at the coming of Christ. One thing that Revelation does not do, it doesn't tell us the time. There aren't any dates that are set here. There, there's nothing that we, can, that we can do to try to figure out the time that Christ is going to come. 
But let's look at some things quickly in relation to its coming. First of all, the Bible teaches that we are to be on the lookout. There's no date. There's no hint of any date for the coming of Christ. Now, there's a lot of date setters. And you may have heard preachers try to to predict it. And you've read books. But anybody who's ever tried to predict the coming of Christ has been proved a fool by one thing. The date that they set. Because Christ didn't come on the date that they set. You know, there's two scriptures that are prominent on the second coming of Christ as regards the time. Look at or listen to Matthew 24, verse 36. But of that day and hour knoweth no man, know not the angels of heaven, but my Father only. In Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, the disciples were questioning Jesus. They said, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put in his own power. So right there in the Word of God, it tells us very simply, you can't know it. And anybody who says that you can know it and tries to set a date, they ally themselves against the one who is truth itself. He said you can't know, and that's absolutely the truth. But I said, there are preachers that, that try to figure it out. There are books that are written about it, and people go busily throughout the Old Testament. They look at the book of Daniel. They try to put the scriptures of the prophecies together. They go into the New Testament here to Revelation, and they're trying to figure out the time that Jesus is going to come back. In fact, there was a whole denomination that got started on the prediction of when Jesus would come back. There was a man by the name of William Miller, And uh, he claimed to be a Baptist, but he got very confused about the second coming of Christ. And so he set a date when Jesus was going to come back. He said that Jesus will come back in 1843. He got a lot of different people from different denominations to agree with him. And so they all started looking for Jesus to come back in 1843. Well, when he didn't come back in 1843, then William Miller said, he's coming back in 1844. And so... By the fall of 1844, there were 100,000 people who joined up with William Miller. They sold all of their possessions, and they moved to New York to wait for the coming of Christ. Why they picked New York, I don't know, but that's where they went to wait for it. Well, Jesus didn't come in 1844. So what did they do? Well, they just adjusted their theology. They had to change some things around. Does anybody know who that is? Seventh-day Adventist. And the Seventh-day Adventists are still as confused as they ever were about the second coming of Christ. Well, it didn't stop in the 1800s. There, there are still various groups that are, that are making all kinds of prognostications about when Christ is coming again. How many of you know who Harold Camping is? Most of you know him. He's the uh, owner and founder of Family Radio. And Harold Camping said that Jesus was going to come back in 1993. Well, what did that do? it proved that Harold Camping's an old fool. At least on that issue, he's a fool because Jesus didn't come back in 1993. So now I, I understand, I don't listen to him, but I understand someone's told me that he's now predicting that Jesus will come in 2011. If I was made a fool of the first time and I called Jesus a liar, I don't think I'd be setting any more dates. But people still do it. Uh, in 1988, there was a man by the name of Edgar Wisenant who wrote a book, titled 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Could Be in 1988. And uh, he said that Jesus was going to come back between September 11th 
and September 13th of 1998. He sold four and a half million copies of his book, and he had a lot of people believing that's when Jesus was coming back. This was taken so seriously that that great bastion of Christian broadcasting, known as the Trinity Broadcasting Network, stopped their regular programming during that time to give everybody tips on what you're to do when Jesus comes back. So they're all getting ready for the rapture. Now let me say this first of all. If you listen to Trinity Broadcasting Network, 99.9% of everything you're going to hear on there is junk. Don't pay any attention to it. But as Edgar Wisenant said, that's when he's coming back. But we all know Christ didn't come back in 1988. So he wrote some more books. And he said Christ is coming back in 1989. That didn't work out. So he said he's coming in 1993. And that didn't work. And he said he's coming in 1994. And I guess he kind of got the picture not to write any more books. Because as far as I know, he's not making another prediction. But here's one thing that he said. He said, Jesus Christ is coming back at this time. And if he doesn't come back, the only way that he won't come back is if the Bible itself is wrong. And Jesus had already said, you can't know when I'm coming back. So the truth of it, you don't know the date. You can't figure out the date. Nobody knows. But here's one thing you can know. One thing the Bible does say, be on the lookout. Jesus could come at any time. There are no events that have to take place before Jesus can come back. He can come back at any time. So the Bible teaches, be on the lookout, be watchful. But there's a second thing that I think we learn from this, and that is to beware the fallout. If you're a Christian, you don't have to worry about the fallout because you won't be here. When Jesus comes back, he's going to take you out of this world, so you don't have to worry about what's going to happen after that. The Bible tells us that the trumpet of God is going to sound, and every Christian is like that. Off you go. You're going to meet Jesus in the air. First Thessalonians, you're familiar with the Scripture. I think Nick even read this the other night. For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. So if you're a Christian, when Jesus comes back, off you go. But if you're not a Christian, beware the fallout. Now I want you to notice something he says here in the middle of verse 7. The second phrase says, Every eye shall see him. And then it says, And they also which pierced him and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of him. When Jesus came the first time, he was rejected. There was a mock trial that was set up, a cross where Jesus was taken to and crucified. We've read and we've studied and you know all about the physical beatings of Christ and you know all the things that took place in that and all the pain. But one of the things that was so serious about it, I mean, it was all very, very serious, but in relation to him as being God, probably the most serious thing that happened was that Here is the king of the universe who subjected himself to the creature to be humiliated. The the, the awesomeness of Christ in his position, if there's anything that could could be the worst of all, it would have to be the humiliation of Christ. And we find that when we get to the book of Philippians chapter 2, Paul talks about that humiliation. But friends, it's not going to happen a second time. The first time Jesus came, he was willing to give himself up. He came to this earth to die for our sins, but that time's over. The second time, he's not going to do that. The Bible says and teaches that when he comes again, he's coming in power and glory. 
So the second time, everybody who is prepared by faith in that sacrifice at the first time, when you're apprised of that, you're on the lookout. But if you are not a Christian, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, you need to beware that he's coming with vengeance. So if you don't go in the rapture, you're going to be left on this earth. And the horror and the awfulness of that time, I can't even describe it to you. The Bible talks about a tribulation period, which I won't preach about tonight. It's coming later. But there is coming a time that the world has never seen anything like it before. And as I say, I can't even describe how bad that it's going to be. But Jesus, when he comes back, he's coming to take everybody who's on the lookout. And everybody else will be, will be stuck in the fallout of it. There's a, a series of books that I know all of you are familiar with called the Left Behind series. I've never read any of those books. I think it's a colossal waste of time. I, I don't think that you ought to spend your time reading that kind of junk. I think it's totally wrong to fictionalize the Bible. But they did get one thing right. If you don't go in the rapture, you're going to be left behind. So be on the lookout. Beware the fallout. And thirdly, be on the uptake. Now, I said I'm not going to spend much time on the, on the resurrection, but I do want to tell you this. There's going to be two resurrections. You want to be in the first one and not in the second one. The first one involves everybody who has ever believed. Christ is coming back, and he is the first fruits of the, re- of the resurrection. And in that resurrection will encompass all of the Old Testament saints, all the people that are living in the New Testament era, and those uh, of, the, of the tribulation saints are also going to be raised. Now, they come later after the second coming, but that's all comprehended in the first resurrection. I'm actually going to talk about that. I believe it's next Sunday morning. We're going to explain all of that. But the second resurrection, if you're in the first one, don't worry about that. If you're a believer, somewhere in there, you're going to be in the first resurrection. Not the tribulation, that'll come later, but you'll be in the first resurrection because you're a believer in Jesus right now. But there's coming a second resurrection, and that's the one that you need to fear. In Revelation 20, verse 6, it says, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection. On on such the second death hath no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So if there's a first resurrection, there must be a second resurrection. And in the second resurrection, that's when all the unbelievers are going to be raised and they will experience a second death. Now what happens to Christians is that when you die, you only die one time. You're raised never to die again. But those who are unbelievers, they're going to die twice. They die in the flesh, and then they're also going to die an eternal death in the fires of hell. Now, as I say, that is an eternal death. It's not annihilation, not as the Jehovah Witnesses believe, but this is a conscious existence in the fires of a literal hell. There's more to come on that subject, but listen to this in Revelation 21, verse 8. But the fearful and unbelieving... And the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So where do we want to be? We want to be in the first resurrection. We want to be in that uptake. Now, let me close the message tonight with this thought. Uh, There's one word that we've read here in this scripture that we cannot pass up. And you know I'm not going to pass this up without commenting about it. And this is in, in verse number 4. John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you. We find grace in the beginning of the revelation. 
Now, verse number four, that's the beginning. Revelation begins and ends with grace. The starting point is there, verse number four, and John says, grace to you. And that's where he starts to lay out all of this information to the seven churches. So he starts with grace. But then in the last verse of the Bible, and the very last verse of the Revelation says, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. If you don't know why you need the grace of God, then you need to keep coming back on Sunday nights. You need to find out what is going to happen between Revelation chapter 1, verse 4, and Revelation 22, verse number 21. And grace is needed all the way through this. So whether it's horror or whether it's heaven, folks, you need the grace of God. All of us do. And we'll, we'll see that as we go through the book of Revelation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to you tonight, thank you so much for this wonderful hello that's given by the Apostle John and by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. We thank you, Lord, for the revelation that's been given. Help us to understand it better and let us see Christ in ways we've never seen him before. Bless our people tonight in this time of invitation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.